Chapter Three of Perfect Behavior by Donald Ogden Stewart. Chapter Three The Etiquette of Travel. The etiquette of travel, like that of courtship and marriage, has undergone several important changes with the advent of democracy and the mechanical age. Time was when travel was indulged in only by the better classes of society, and the rules of traveler's etiquette were well defined and acknowledged by all. But Yankee ingenuity has indeed brought the mountain to Mohammed. The iron horse and the Pullman coach have, I believe, come to stay, bringing with them many new customs and manners for the well-bred gentleman or lady who would travel correctly. Truly, the old order changeth, and it is, perhaps, only proper that one should keep, if you will pardon the use of the word, abreast of the times. Hints for the correct pedestrian. Let us suppose, for example, that you are a young gentleman of established social position in one of the many cities of our great Middle West, and it is your desire to travel from your home to New York City for the purpose of viewing the many attractions of that metropolis, of which I need perhaps only mention the Aquarium, or Grant's Tomb, or the Eden Musee. Now there are many ways of getting to New York, such as a. on foot, b. via rail. It should be your first duty to select one of these methods of transportation. Walking to New York, A above, is often rejected because of the time and effort involved, and it is undoubtedly true that if one attempted to journey afoot from the Middle West one would probably be quite fatigued at the end of one's journey. The etiquette of walking, however, is the same for short as for long distances, and I shall at this point give a few of the many rules for correct behavior among pedestrians. In the first place, it is always customary in a city for a young lady, either accompanied or unaccompanied, to walk on the sidewalk. A young miss who persists in walking in the gutters is more apt to lose than to make friends among the socially worthwhile. Gentlemen, either with or without ladies, are never seen walking after dark in the sewers or along the elevated tracks. It is not au fait for gentlemen or ladies wearing evening dress to catch on behind passing ice wagons, trucks, etc. The time and energy saved are doubtfully repaid should one happen to be driven thus past other members of one's particular social set. Ladies walking alone on the street after dark do not speak to gentlemen unless they have been previously introduced or are out of work with winter coming on. A gentleman walking alone at night, when accosted by a young woman whom he has not met socially, removes his hat politely, bows and passes on, unless she looks awfully good. Debutantes meeting traffic policemen always bow first in America. In the continental countries, with their age-old flavor of aristocratic court life, this custom is reversed. A bachelor, accompanied by a young unmarried woman, when stepping accidentally into an open coal or sewer hole in the sidewalk, removes his hat and gloves as inconspicuously as possible. It is never correct for young people of either sex to push older ladies in front of swiftly approaching motor vehicles or streetcars. A young man, if run over by an automobile driven by a strange lady, should lie perfectly still, unless dead, until an introduction can be arranged. The person driving the car usually speaks first. An unmarried woman, if run into and knocked down by a taxicab driven by someone in her own set, usually says, Why the hell don't you look where you're going? To which the taxi driver, removing his hat, replies, Why the hell don't you? 
A correct costume for gentlemen walking in the parks or streets of a city, either before or after dark, consists of shoes, two, socks, two, undergarments, trousers, shirt, necktie, collar, vest, coat, and hat. For pedestrians of the opposite sex, the costume is practically the same, with the exception of the socks, trousers, shirt, necktie, collar, vest, and coat. However, many women now affect knickerbockers, and vice versa. A young lady of good breeding, when walking alone, should not talk or laugh in a loud, boisterous manner. Capers, e.g., climbing trees, etc., while good exercise, and undoubtedly fashionable in certain speedy circles, are of questionable taste for ladies, especially if indulged in to excess, or while walking with young gentlemen on the Sabbath. Sport is sport, and no one loves a stiff game of fives or rounders more than I, but the spectacle of a young unmarried lady and her escort hanging by their limbs on the Lord's Day from the second or third cross-arm of an electric telegraph pole is certainly carrying things a bit too far, in my opinion, even in this age of golf and lawn-tennis. A young gentleman escorting a lady on foot to a formal ball or the opera should walk on the outside, especially if they are both in evening dress and have a long distance to go. It is never incorrect to suggest the use of a streetcar, or as one gets near the opera house, a carriage or a taxicab. A young man walking with a young lady, when accosted by a beggar, always gives the beggar something unless the young lady is his wife or his sister. So much for pedestrians. I cannot, of course, pretend to give here all the rules for those who go afoot, and I can only say that the safest principle for correct behavior in this, as in many social matters, is the now famous reply Thomas Edison once made to the stranger who asked him with what he mixed his paints in order to get such marvelous effects. One part inspiration, replied the great inventor, and nine parts perspiration. In other words, etiquette is not so much a matter of genius as of steady application to small details. Traveling by Rail in America, much of the traveling is done by rail. The etiquette of railroad behavior is extremely complicated, especially if one is forced to spend the night en route, on the way. And many and ludicrous are the mistakes made by those whose social training has apparently fitted them more for a freight car than for an up-to-date parlor or Pullman coach. Good Form on a Streetcar Let us, first of all, however, take up some of the simpler forms of rail transportation, such as, for example, the electric street or tram car now to be seen on the main highways and byways of all our larger cities. The rules governing behavior on these vehicles often appear at first quite complicated, but when one has learned the ropes, as they say in the Navy, one should have no difficulty. An elderly lady with a closed umbrella, for example, desiring to take a streetcar, should always stand directly under a large sign marked Street cars do not stop on this corner. As the car approaches, she should run quickly out to the car tracks and signal violently to the motorman with the umbrella. As the car whizzes past without stopping, she should cease signaling, remark, Well, I'll be goddamned, and return to the curbstone. After this performance has been repeated with three successive cars, she should then walk slowly out and lie down, in a dignified manner, across the car tracks. In nine cases out of ten, the motorman of the next tram will see her lying there and will be gentleman enough to stop his car. 
When this happens, the elderly lady should get quietly up from the street and stand outside the door marked Exit Only until the motorman opens it for her. She should then enter with the remark, I signaled to three cars and not one of them stopped, to which the motorman will reply, But lady, that sign there says they don't stop on this corner. The lady should then say, What's your number? I'm going to report you. After taking his number, she should enter the car. At the opposite end of the vehicle, there will undoubtedly be three or four vacant seats. Instead of taking one of these, she should stand up in front of some young man and glare at him until he gets up and gives her his place. It is not customary in American cities for ladies to thank gentlemen who provide them with seats. After a few minutes, she should turn to the man at her right and ask, Does this car go to Madison Heights? He will answer, No. She should then turn to the man on her left and ask, Does this car go to Madison Heights? He will answer, No. Her next question, Does this car go to Madison Heights? should be addressed to a man across the aisle, and the answer will be, No. She should then listen attentively while the conductor calls out the names of the streets, and as he shouts, Blaum knew. She should ask the man at her right, Did he say Madison Heights? He will reply, No. At the next street the conductor will shout, Blaum knew. At which she should ask, Did he say Madison Heights? Once more the answer will be in the negative. The car will proceed and the conductor will now call, Blaum knew. And as the elderly lady once more says, Did he say Madison Heights? The man at her left, the man at her right, the man across the aisle, and eight other male passengers will shout, Yes. It is then correct for her to pick up her umbrella and, carefully waiting until the conductor has pulled the go-ahead signal, she should cry, Wait a minute, conductor, I want to get off here. The car will then be stopped and she should say, Is this Madison Heights? To which the conductor will reply, This ain't the Madison Heights car, lady. She should then say, But you called out Madison Heights. To which he will answer, No, lady, that's eight miles in the opposite direction. She should then leave the streetcar, not forgetting, however, to take the conductor's number again. The above hints for tramcar etiquette apply, of course, only to elderly ladies. For young men and women, the procedure would be in many cases quite different. A young married woman, for example, on entering a streetcar, should always have her ticket or small change so securely buried in the fourth inside pocketbook of her handbag that she cannot possibly find it inside of twelve minutes. Three or more middle-aged ladies, riding together, should never decide as to who is to pay the fare until the conductor has gone stark raving mad. Illustration Caption Her conduct has stamped the young lady as a provincial, and it is not to be wondered as if suppressed titters and half-audible chuckles will follow her about the room. Perfect behavior would have taught her that it is not the prerogative of a muddy-complexioned dud, even if she has had only one dance and her costume is very expensive, to cut in on a gentleman, by grabbing his neck or any other method, when he is dancing with the wide-eyed beauty from the South who leaves in five minutes to catch a train. He will be within his rights when, at the end of five minutes, after three unsuccessful attempts to loosen her grip, he will carry her into the garden under false pretenses and there play the hose on her until she drowns. Illustration Caption They are leaving the home of an intimate friend of several weeks' standing, 
after having witnessed a private theatrical. Both feel that some return should be made for their hostess's kindness, but neither is certain as to just what form the return should take. The book of perfect behavior would have pointed out to them that the only adequate and satisfactory revenge for this sort of thing is to invite the lady, as soon as possible, without exciting her suspicion, to attend an Italian opera or a drawing-room musical. In the Subway The rules governing correct behavior in the underground subway systems of our great cities, particularly the New York subways, are, however, much more simple and elemental than the etiquette for surface cars. In the subway, for example, if you were a married man and living with your wife or head of a family, i.e. a person who actually supports one or more persons living in or under his or her household on the last day of the preceding calendar year, provided that such person or persons shall not on or before July 1st, or if July 1st shall fall on a Sunday, then on the day nearest preceding July 1st, himself or themselves have filed a separate report as provided in paragraph G, you should precede a lady when entering and follow a lady when leaving the train. A Honeymoon in a Subway On the other hand, a wedding or a honeymoon trip in a subway brings up certain problems of etiquette which are entirely different from the above. Let us suppose, for example, that the wedding takes place at high noon in exclusive old Trinity Church, New York. The nearest subway is, of course, the Interboro, West Side, and immediately after the ceremony the lucky couple can run post-haste to the battery and board a Lenox Avenue local. Arriving at Romantic Chambers Street, they should change at once to a Bronx Park Express, which will speedily whiz them past 18th Street, 23rd Street, and 28th Street to the Pennsylvania Station, where they can again transfer, this time to a Broadway local. In a jiffy and two winks of an eye they will be at Times Square, the heart of the Great White Way, that mecca of pleasure-seekers and excitement-lovers, where they can either change to a Broadway Express, journeying under Broadway to historic Columbia University in Harlem, or they can take a busy little shuttle which will hurry them over to the Grand Central Station. There they can board the aristocratic East Side subway, either up or downtown. The trip uptown, Lexington Avenue Express, passes under some of the better-class residential districts, but the journey in the other direction is perhaps more interesting, including as it does such stops as 14th Street, Brooklyn Bridge, Fulton Street, Wall Street, the Financial Center, etc. Not to mention a delightful passage under the East River to Brooklyn, the city of homes and churches. Thus, without getting out of their seats, the happy pair can be transported from one fascinating end of the great city to the other, and when they have exhausted the possibilities of a honeymoon in the Interborough, they can change, with the additional cost of only a few cents apiece, to the BRT or the Hudson Tubes, which will gladly carry them to a thousand new and interesting places. A veritable Aladdin's Lamp on Rails. Traveling Under Steam And now we come to that most complex form of travel, the railroad journey. Let us suppose that instead of attempting to walk to New York, you have elected to go on the train. On the day of your departure you should carefully pack your bag or suitcase, taking care to strap and lock it securely. You can then immediately unstrap and unlock it in order to put in the toothpaste and shaving brush which you forgot to bring from the bathroom. Arriving at the station promptly on the time scheduled for the train to depart, you will find that because of daylight saving time, you have exactly an hour to wait. 
The time, however, can be amusingly and economically spent in the station as follows. Eleven weighing machines at one cent equals eleven cents. Three weighing machines at five cents equal fifteen cents. One weighing machine out of order, nine cents. Seventeen slot machines, chocolate and gum, at one cent equals seventeen cents. Total cost, fifty cents. Unless, of course, you eat the chocolate. Upon the arrival of the train, you consult your ticket to find that you have lower nine in car 43. Walking back to the end of the train and entering car 43, you will find, in berth number nine, a tired woman and two small children. You will also find a hat box, a bird cage, a bag of oranges, a bag of orange peelings, a shoebox of lunch, a rag doll, a toy balloon, half a cookie, and eight million crumbs. The tired woman will then say to you, Are you the gentleman who has the lower berth? To which you answer, Yes. She will then say, Well, say, we've got the upper, and I wonder if you would mind. Not at all, you reply. I should be only too glad to give you my lower. This is always done. After you have seated yourself and the train has started, the lady's little boy will announce, I want a drink, Mama. After he has repeated this eleven times, his mother will say to you, I wonder if you would mind holding the baby while I take Elmer to get a drink. The etiquette of holding babies is somewhat difficult for bachelors to master at first, as there are no hard and fast rules governing conduct under these circumstances. An easy hold for beginners, and one which is difficult for the ordinary baby to break, consists in wrapping the left and right arms firmly around the center of the child, at the same time clutching the clothing with the right hand and the toes with the left, and praying to God that the damn thing won't drop. In this particular case, after Elmer and his mother have gone down the aisle after a drink, the baby which you are holding will at once begin to cry. Now as every mother knows, and especially those mothers who have had children, a baby does not cry without some specific reason, and all that is necessary in the present instance is to discover this reason. First of all, the children may be merely hungry, in which case you should at once ask the porter to bring you the a la carte menu. You should then carefully go over the list of dishes with the infant, taking care to spell out and explain such names as he may not understand. How would you like some nice assorted hors d'oeuvres, you say? Wah, says the baby. No hors d'oeuvres, you say to the waiter. Some blue points, perhaps, you know, O-Y-S-T-E-R-S. -E you might even act out a blue point or two, as in charades, so that the child will understand what you mean. In case, however, the baby does not cease crying after having eaten the first three or four courses, you should not insist on a salad and a dessert, for probably it is not hunger which is occasioning the outcry. Perhaps it is a pin, in which case you should at once spend every effort to the discovery and removal of the irritant. The most generally accepted modern way of effecting this consists in passing a large electromagnet over every portion of the child's anatomy, and the pin if pin there be, will of course at once come to light. Then, too, many small children cry merely because they have swallowed something which does not agree with them, such as, for example, a gold tooth or a shoehorn. The remedy in this case consists in immediately feeding the child the proper counter-irritant. 
There is really no great mystery about the successful raising of children, and with a few common-sense principles, such as presented above, any mother may relieve herself of a great deal of useless anxiety. I hope I may be pardoned for a digression here, but I feel very strongly that today's babies are tomorrow's citizens, and I do want to see them brought up in the proper way. But to return to our train. Perhaps by this time the mother and Elmer will have returned, and you will be relieved of further investigation as to the cause of the infant's discomfort. A few minutes later, however, little Elmer will say, Mama, I want the window open. This request will be duly referred to you, via the line of authority. It is then your duty to assume a firm, upright stance, with the weight evenly distributed on both feet, and work for twelve minutes and thirty-nine seconds in a terrific struggle to raise the windows. At the end of twelve minutes and forty seconds, you will succeed. The window will slowly go up, and the train will at once enter a tunnel, filling the car and you with coal smoke. In the resulting darkness and confusion, you should seize little Elmer, throw him quickly out of the open window, and make your escape to the gentleman's smoking compartment in the rear of your car. In the smoker you will find three men. The first of these will be saying, And he told me that a bootlegger he knew had cleaned up a thousand dollars a week since January. The second will say, Well, down where I come from there's men who never took a drink before Prohibition who get drunk all the time now. The third will say, Well, I tell you men, the saloon had to go. Provision for satisfying the inner man is now a regular part of the equipment of all modern trains, and about 6.30 or 7 you should leave your companions in the smoker and walk through the train until you reach the diner. Here you will seat yourself at a table with three other gentlemen, the first of whom will be remarking, as you sit down, and I know for a fact that this bootlegger was making over $50,000 a year. A Correct Night in a Pullman before the days of modern railroads, one could not very well travel overnight, but now, thanks to Mr. Pullman, it is possible for the traveler to go to bed en route, and be every bit as snug and comfortable as the proverbial insect in a rug. Shortly after dinner the porter will make up the berths in the car, and when you desire to retire for the night you should ask him to bring you the ladder in order that you may ascend to upper nine. While you are waiting, you should stand in the aisle and remove your coat, vest and shoes, and then begin to search for your suitcase, which you will finally locate by crawling on your chin and stomach under berth number eleven. When you again resume an upright position, the train will give a sudden lurch, precipitating you into berth number twelve. A woman's voice will then say, Alice? To which you should of course answer, No, and climb quickly up the ladder into your proper berth. A great deal of to-do is often made of the difficulty involved in undressing in an upper berth, but most of this is quite uncalled for. Experienced travelers now generally wait until the lights of the car have been dimmed or extinguished when the disrobing can be done quite simply in five counts, as follows. 1. Unloosen all clothing and lie flat on the back. The respiration should be natural, easy, and through the lungs. The muscles should be relaxed. 2. Pivoting on the back of the head and neck, 
Inhale quickly, at the same time drawing the muscles of the legs and arms sharply under the body, as for a spring. 3. Spring suddenly upward and to the right, or left, catching the bell cord, which extends along the roof of the train, with the teeth, hands, and feet. 4. Holding firmly to the cord with the knees, describe a sudden arc downward with the head and body, returning to position as soon as the shirt and undershirt have dropped off into the aisle. 5. Taking a firm hold on the cord with the teeth, let go sharply with the knees. The trousers, etc., should at once slide off, and you can, and in fact should, then swing yourself quickly back into your berth and pajamas. Once inside your bunk, you should drift quickly off to slumberland, and when you wake up it will be five minutes later, and the blank engineer will be trying to see what he can do with an air brake and a few steel sleeping cars. In the morning you will be in New York. End of chapter 3 of Perfect Behavior by Donald Ogden Stewart